Welcome to the Washington Union Alliance Church Podcast, an archive of our recorded sermons. We're a Christian and Missionary Alliance Church located in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. For more information, go to wuac.org. Okay, we are beginning a sermon series centered around the person of Jesus And Jesus makes some very significant statements all across the Gospel of John and across, of course, all of his ministry is very significant, but he makes some very significant statements in the Gospel of John. And these are more than just simple statements, but they give us a window into his his life and why we believe and why we believe and what we believe. And so these are very significant Um, to place our faith and trust in someone that says something that's very significant. So we're going to look through the seven I am statements of Jesus. These come across the gospel of John, and these are the seven I am statements. We're going to go through each one. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And I just kind of want to make a I guess a funny remark is I misspelled, (laughs) um, uh, I am the way, I said, uh, I misspelled this, but on my notes, I am the way, the the truth, and the lie. (laughs) Uh, So that is not the case, okay? So let's just just kind of throw that out there. He's the life, the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the true vine, okay? So you see oftentimes, let's be honest, church, there's oftentimes this great contrast in the scriptures, right? There's this like gap between, we like read those statements, we look at them, and there's this great gap between us and God and Christ and just how much we are in contrast to all of that. Um, and it kind of creates this like really discouraging thing um, because oftentimes it creates this like, okay, what do I do with all those statements? I'm placing my trust in that. What do I do next? And it's just kind of this contrast we have um, and, you know, we are sinful. He is holy. He is trusting, and yet we are prone to worry, and oftentimes this creates this bit of this discouragement sometimes. Yet we know from the Scriptures that Jesus himself continually draws people into himself because he knows this life is very hard. He says this, Come to me, all you are, what? Weary and burdened, and I will give you, what? Anybody weary and burdened today? You don't need to raise your hand. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is what? Light. I can remember in seminary, I had a professor. Um, I never forgot this. Listen, I grew up in church, and I went to Sunday school. I knew the prayers, knew the books of the Bible, did the song you know, did the Sunday school music. And I had a professor in seminary say this to me named Bob Stamps. Bob Stamps said this very profound statement. He said, uh, I grew up in church and he said, Jesus is not a was, Jesus is an is. Jesus is not a was, he's an is. We believe that Jesus died and rose again and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's active and he's alive. He did not die twice. He's on his throne and he's just as much active in our world as he was 2,000 years ago. And if he's alive, and if he's alive, that changes how we live in our relationships and our families and our churches also. One author notes this, that no leader, no author, no organization, and no set of religious disciplines can do for us what Jesus alone can do if we let him. 
Even the book you're now reading can merely point the way to Jesus. Divine truth becomes dynamic life only when we yield to Jesus by faith and follow him. And if the founders of the world's philosophies and religious systems were alive on the earth today, they could only say, I was. They're dead and they can't personally help you at this point. Jesus doesn't say I was. He is alive and he says, I am. And he can meet our needs today. He's alive in this very moment and offers us a sustaining spiritual life in the very present tense. Hebrews 13.8 reminds us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Past history, present reality, and future certainty all unite today under Jesus Christ, the great I Am. The I Am statements recorded in Scripture reveal the depths of the Christian life and how God's children, we all can go deeper and living with Jesus in the present tense. Right now, in 2022, on the first day of spring, and it's not spring, uh, but it is spring, on the first day of spring in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, that's what it means. That is exactly what it means, that you and I, sitting in these pews, Western Pennsylvanians sitting in these pews today, that Christ can do this right now. The life that says this, that we with Paul can be able to say in Galatians 2.20, the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, sometimes in our memories, in our imagination, we try to live in the past or in the future. Do we not? But sometimes it doesn't produce a very balanced Christian life. Like we tend, we have this, we, we have to continue to live day to day present for the Lord. And someone reminded me that, uh, that the, someone, someone said that the good old days are a, are a mixture of a bad memory and a good imagination. And my past may discourage me, and the future may frighten us. But the life that I now live right now, that you and I now live today, can be enriching and encouraging because Christ lives in me. As we live by faith one day at a time, Jesus enables us to be faithful and content. It's Warren Wearsby that reminds us that God doesn't want us to ignore the past. The past should be a rudder to guide us, not an anchor to hold us back. Nor does he want us to neglect planning for the future as well. So as long as we say, if it be the Lord's will. The better we understand these I am statements and by faith apply them, the more our strength will equal our days and we will run and not grow weary and walk and not be faint according to Isaiah 40, 31. We will abide in Christ and bear fruit for his glory today now. And do you believe that even now? That he really is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he is who he says he is. That he's able to bring forth hope and healing and redemption in your life even now. My prayer in this series that this is the calling for all Christians. That this is the calling for all Christians now, that Jesus, we live into the reality of this. And we must realize that the power to fulfill the call of Christ comes from the depending on who Christ is and what Christ does, a present reality. And let's just kind of, I, just even last night, we prayed for someone. It was a miracle that they're alive. I mean, this is present. Like, this is, this is very, very present. It's very real. God is very much in the working, and God still works today. So that's why we're going to go to this series. We're going to uncover and rediscover the emptiness that sometimes we face when we pray or when we face when we're like, who is Jesus? 
All of these statements are coming from the Gospel of John. And John's Gospel is an account about the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John is very, uh, very easy to read, I, I think. John is very easy to read and distinctives of mind in comparison to the other three Gospel accounts as well. It's John's Gospel. John has one goal to write in his Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They're telling about the story of Jesus. But John in particular is saying that I want the world to know Jesus. And this is why in John 20... 30 to 31, very key verse highlighting this, which is the purpose of John's gospel. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. We only get some of the things, most of the important things that are recorded. He did so much more, but yet we're only getting a little bit of it. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And when we read that, that you may believe, write your name, in Western Pennsylvania, right now, Christians living right now in these pews in Western Pennsylvania, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that you may have life in his name. And John wants us to know that to believe in Jesus Christ is to be changed. You see, the word believe shows up 98 times in John's gospel alone, and that singular focus is that the world may know Jesus is the Christ. John wants us to know that through the miracles of Jesus, we can come to know Jesus, but we can also know a lot about ourselves as well. So here's kind of the big picture. We talk about this um, big picture of John 6. When you open up your Bible, you're going to open up to a chapter, and this chapter is formatted and fits in within a larger kind of framework. And so I kind of want to highlight this for a second, that John 6 in particular is Jesus when he's feeding the 5,000. And I didn't write the page number so someone can yell it out at me. I would love that. Um, it can, it's on the screen, but it's also in the Bible in front of you. And as everyone opens up very quickly, we're going to have a sword drill right now in the middle of church. Does anyone know what a sword drill is? It's like when you say, a, <laughs> anyone, when you grew up in church and like you, <laughs> Sunday school class, seventh, Janice Pardick, yeah, yeah, you won, yeah, all right. Everybody clap, Janice Pardick won, yeah, okay, all right. All right, Janice, uh, you win. Um, she's like, quit talking about me. Um, I will. Um, Jesus has been teaching the crowds, and um, why did I just do that? I don't know why. Okay, let's bring it in. All right. <laughs> I'm sweating. Um, Jesus, Jesus has been teaching the crowds, and this particular I am statement comes with the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. If you, John 6, Jesus is teaching the crowds. This is 5,000. Maybe you've heard of this story before. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with like five loaves and two fish. It's like this incredible story. Um, bread and fish. And what we know is Jesus says that he says we're today, I'm the bread of life, but it's just more than this. So quite simply, let's be real. Hunger is something that God has built into the human body. Like it reminds us that we've got to eat. When you're hungry, you, you, you know exactly when you need to eat. And if because without food or water, you're going to die. Um, the first few verses in chapter 6, this kind of gives us a little bit of insight as to Jesus and what he's doing and why he's doing it as to what is going on here. And it says this, that sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people. Now, these crowds of people, there's got these disciples and you've got these large crowds trying to follow him. And there's kind of this distinction here. So you've got crowds following him and his disciples um, because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Um, then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. So Jesus is having a very successful ministry 
um, at this point, and that people were wanting to be around him, but it's drawing so much large crowds. Um, and in one sense, it was, it's great that he was like so busy, but yet the ministry was going well, so well that, the G, that Jesus and the disciples didn't have time for lunch. Um, so they had been peopled to death. You don't need to say amen to that. Uh, people after people and more people. So Jesus and his disciples take a boat, cross the sea, and hoping to rest their tired bodies there and, their drain, and lift their drained spirits. So 7 through 9, um, we're going to skip to 7 through 9. It highlights the disciples um, and sometimes our disconnect here. Um, it goes like this. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? Now, it's a very large crowd. Very honest question, too. Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, It would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Okay? So, notice it's Jesus who places the ball in the disciples' court here for a second. So Philip says, where shall we buy bread? And then, uh, I said, I'm sorry, Jesus says to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? It's like, Jesus, you're like, come on, why are you asking that? You're the miracle worker here. Um, and he's placing the ball in his disciples' court. He's asking for faith in this instance. And I mean, up until this point in John 6, you've got Jesus um, who turns the water into wine He's been front and center at that wedding, and then he's been in Samaria, and he's healed a lame man in Jerusalem. And Jesus asks Philip, where can we buy bread, and not, how can we do a miracle? So notice what happens next in verse 8. Another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two fish, but how far will they go among so many? Apparently, Andrew has been with all of these miracles. He's seen it firsthand. He's walked with Jesus. He doesn't see or appreciate Jesus himself right there in front of them asking the question. Philip sees the impossibility of the financial situation. This is going to cost a lot of money to do this, several thousand dollars worth of bread. And he forgets the miracle-working Lord right in front of him who's asking the question. And it begs the question this. Who do we see Jesus as? Are we consumed oftentimes with the size of human problems, right? Maybe it's money, maybe it's numbers of people in this instance, in this story, rather than the weightiness of Jesus and his presence in order to solve them. Far too often, we often look at the obstacle or the problem in front of us rather than looking at the presence of the living Lord himself. And in fact, it's Jesus who affirms that very little mustard seed faith very little mustard seed faith, which is something that he can and he will work with. We, like the disciples here, can, can look at the very, very big problems in front of us, yet it's Jesus that affirms that faith begins very small. Jesus says in Matthew 17, 20, if you have faith the size of just a little mustard seed, you can say to this mountain here, move over and it will move over and there will be nothing impossible for you. Jesus wants our participation in this life, which is really baffling and mind-boggling to say, but that he clearly wants your involvement and my involvement in our trust in him and the world around us. So Dale Bruner says this about the feeding of the 5,000, that even in this realistically impossible situations, even in realistically impossible situations, please give Jesus a little something, a little faith at least, 
a little credit for being able to do a great deal with the very little we have amidst all these people. You see, it's very clear that Jesus takes mustard seed faith, the smallest of all seeds, and it's, he's very, very able to work with it. So do we give him credit in, in our life, a little credit, for those big-sized problems that you and I are facing, those big-sized problems right now that we're facing that seem very weighty and unattainable, unbearable? Do we give him the credit to be able to use whatever faith we can muster? Do we do that? Okay, so we at this church value the preaching and teaching of the scriptures. And I pray if you don't have a home church, you'd find one that does preach and teach from scriptures faithfully. Skipping to verse 25 of chapter 6 through verse 29. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are not looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed a seal of approval. And when they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to what? It's the word, believe in the one who he has sent. Who he has sent. You see, the great work of God is that faith is a gift and that we can trust him. Faith is a gift. We are supposed to do something with that word, and that word is trust. And it can feel kind of like, when we say that, it can feel kind of like a cop-out answer or like a half-hearted plea almost. And it feels like we ought to do something more, like let's do something more here. And he's like, trust? Yeah, trust him. Trust him. We will quickly find out that all this crowd has a lot of misconceptions of what it means to follow Jesus. Maybe you've become a Christian and you're wondering where all of these promised blessings come from or where maybe you've followed Jesus and maybe you're, you know, you're wondering where maybe financial help will come from or financial prosperity or, or a life free from enemies maybe and hard times. Maybe you're like a Christian and Wanting, don't want any hard times or hard decisions anymore. And Jesus is saying, trust me and receive me as I really am. I'm the lamb who's come to take away the sins of the world. I'm the one who's overcome the world. I'm the one who's come to take away sins. And we often look toward faith to serve our own interests. And Jesus says, come to me and not yourself, which is hard. John, verse 30, says this. So they asked him, what sign will then will you give that we may see it and we may believe you. Now, they've already seen a bunch of signs and they've already seen Jesus turn a bunch of five loaves and two fish into a lot of things. So he says, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and that's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, very truly I tell them, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives what? Life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And Jesus declared this, I am the what? The bread of life. And whoever comes to me will never grow hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Two very essential things, hunger and thirst, to live. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you don't believe. Isn't it amazing how like, the disciples were there and like the crowd's there and they see him and they still don't believe it. 
You know, it's like, and so sometimes we're like, this should give us encouragement. Because um, we don't necessarily see him like there were not an eyewitness to that. And they still didn't believe him. You see, when Jesus says he is the bread of life, he's saying that his life is true and everything that he says and does is trustworthy. Very ordinary object in bread. And he teaches that as you receive bread into your body and it sustains your life, receiving Jesus into your heart gives you the same nourishment for your soul. And Jesus says in his ministry, when Jesus says in his ministry, church, and don't miss this part, when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He's saying you can place your trust in that. (laughs) He can say those words because he's saying, you can trust in me. Come to me. When Jesus says, don't worry about what you drink or what you wear, we have to trust what he says is true. When Jesus says that we're to come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden and give him rest, we trust him to do that for us. In verse 35, notice the phrase this. Verse 35 says, um, and I'm paraphrasing, the person simply coming to me. It says, Jesus says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. But the person coming to me, the person is every one of us are hearing this right now. All of us hearing this word is addressed. So how do we give the bread of life? And the answer is just come and come again and come again. And that word simply in the earlier, trans, the earlier of that is just the simplicity of Jesus' promises without any other part of coming to that, but just simply his promises and coming and trusting, which describe our very simple part to do that. All the grandeur and greatness of being or belonging to the heaven-sent cosmos coming one, he does all the work. And is there any simpler way to describe than our responsibility or privilege and just to come? Just come. The simplest prayer comes. Maybe for you, the simple personal presence in his church. Come. Or maybe a personal time of prayer, a family time of prayer, a small group meeting in his name. Come. He comes to that. The simple, simplest personal obedience to the will of God, to the Spirit of God, whom we have learned from, come. But Jesus here gives us no such particulars, and he leaves all of this and all the various hows of coming to him to us. And he simply invites us to just simply be his comers. And that's all. We will find ways to come. All such comers, he promises, no real hungers ever again. And maybe you're like, man, is this true? This is true. I mean, does he really do this? Does he really satisfy those deepest longings, those cravings that we long for, the significance that we desire, the meaning that we long for? Um, Right? These people in this crowd wanted more out of Jesus. They wanted more of what Jesus can offer rather than simply the gift of himself. He's remembering the story. We mentioned the story about the manna in the wilderness in the Old Testament, a story we actually preached on a few years ago here. Um, it's a little bit, of, kind of a little bit bears repeating 
um, about this. This is a man in the wilderness. This is when the Israelites were in the Old Testament, and this is God's people several thousand years before Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus refers to manna in the wilderness, and it's in Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Um, it's also on the screen behind me, but just verses 1 through 4. That the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, now they were in slavery in Egypt for many, many years. They were in slavery into Egypt, and all of a sudden they're in the wilderness. They're currently in the wilderness for 40 years, and they start to complain. And they say this, um, that the Israelites said, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, they would rather die than be alive. There we sat around pots and meat and get all the food that we wanted, but you brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. Even in their grumbling, God still provides, um, still provides manna. The people are to go out each day and gather enough people for that day. Uh, in this way, I will test them and see whether they follow my instructions. You see, oftentimes in the wilderness, kind of in the when we're in seasons of wilderness, or we're in seasons maybe we're asking God a lot of questions, the first temptation in the wilderness is to grumble and complain. And as soon as the Israelites leave Sinai, they start to complain. They start to question things, wonder if there's any purpose to what's going on. Maybe you're in a wilderness right now. You're like, God, I don't know where I am right now. I'm not sure exactly what my purpose is. You see, the church in times of danger or uncertainty or, or uncomfortability is to grumble. The temptation is to grumble. There's always a temptation to complain because complaining and grumbling arise out of, out of circumstances oftentimes. And a lot of times there are circumstances out of our control. You know, and we, should we still mumber and complain anyway? You know, I don't, you know, that's... Maybe your mind goes elsewhere in this. Maybe you're like me and I, I've got a right to complain. You know, the cards haven't been in my favor. You know, I haven't caught a break maybe. And it's been a tough time. And then there's a place to acknowledge things as they really are. And the problem here, though, is deeper than that for the Israelites. You see, the second temptation that they had, that they, were, that they came out of Egypt, they tempted to go back to Egypt. And God has freed them from slavery. Grumbling distorted their, their vision of the present and future by lamenting on the past, which was not very good. And their past history, the so many of them would have remembered, that lingered inside of their heads. You see, the temptation is to believe, to say things that, man, things were better, my life was better, if only what I used to have. If only. If only I had what I used to have. And oftentimes, church, the temptation for grumbling comes out of a want for more. They still get manna. And then we learn that they complain about the manna that they get. God, we maybe if you're like, God, I had it so much better in Egypt. Maybe you're like, man, if only I had that job. God, I don't like where I'm at right now. If only I had another family. If only I had that house that really I wanted that I didn't get, but my neighbor got it. If only I was able to get the promotion that I so desperately wanted and I couldn't get. Then I would find contentment. Then I would find rest for my soul. 
only I had that, fill in the blank, then my life would be happier and then more fulfilling. And I can fall in that trap too. I'm not immune to this. God, if only there wasn't a pandemic the last two years. And I'm reminded of a couple things in this, church. God is just as much in the wilderness as He is when He was on Sinai. God is still as much in the wilderness in your life. You may think He's not. He is just as much there than He is than He was on Sinai. You may not feel it or see it or may not understand it fully, but He is just as much in that as He is in those mountaintop experiences that you've been really close to Him. The temptation is to run back to Egypt, ditch the efforts of the present, and then go back to the past and then hold on to things. Might we, church, be holding God hostage in our efforts to move forward? This is just our personal life. Might we be holding God hostage by clinging on to the past rather than boldly moving forward with Him into the future? I mean, you know, it's very easy to kind of do this. If only, we can fill in the blank for those if-onlys in our life. It's when we, will in, we begin to allow the circumstances to life to begin to debilitate our spiritual life that we lose out on what God is doing right now. God is doing something in each one of your lives right now. Whether you know it or not, God is doing something and working in your life. In fact, I just got asked that this week. Like, what is God doing in your life? And maybe that's a good reflection point that we ought to ask ourselves today. What is God doing in your life today? might take some with only. If only, if only, if only. You may be feeling regret, you know, and, and if is, an, is a very defeating word because it looks back on a past that we can't change. Regret is a very powerful force. Maybe you look back on your past with regret. If only I had done things this way or not. It haunts the present. If only we had that big house that my best friend lives in. Maybe if I've only had enough money or resources, then my life would have turned out differently. If only I had blank. Just a pastoral word here as we wrap up is that sin is contagious. And complaining is contagious. When I complain, my children complain. When I get angry, it flares the tempers of those around me. When I gossip, others join in. Vultures surround one another, and that's they come where the carcass is. What about you? When others are standing around the water cooler, complaining about the boss, is it easier to point out your own irritations? When another woman shares her frustrations about her husband or a friend, does it open the door for you to vent as well? Maybe what about your church? Maybe you're asking yourself those questions in your personal life. It's where we begin as God's people to doubt the provisions that God has for us. And He has everything, He's given us everything that we need through Him. Instead of thanking Him for exiting out of 400 years of slavery and parting a sea and giving Him a covenant and gracefully leading Him out of there, they complain about the type of food they get. Not that they didn't have any food at all. They complained about the type of food that they ate. And they second-guessed the provision that God had for them. 
So do we complain that we want God to do more for us than what Jesus has already done for us? You see, do we want God sometimes to be the genie in the bottle, giving us and granting us wishes? Or are we content with God giving us the gift of His Son, Jesus? And that's enough. That He's already given us life and life to the fullest. And do we not want more out of that, though? We want more out of Him? If our sins are forgiven, then eternal life is available. So what more could we want? So you're, maybe you're like here, you're like, man, what do I do about a statement about Jesus? I am the bread of life. What do I do with that? If you don't know Jesus, I pray that you will take the next step to trust in Jesus. When he's saying he's the bread of life, he's saying in that verse in chapter 6, this is the bread for eternal life. We have eternity in view. This is the life-giving substance is Jesus Christ himself. You will not regret having him as your savior and placing faith and trust and lordship in your life. You will not regret that. But those of us who do trust in Jesus, there's a kind of a, a really strong statement that Jesus makes at the end in Matthew. And Jesus says, I pray today, and it's simply, what do we do with this? If we know him, and the last day, Jesus says, if you do, one day the Lord will say, well, all of us will have to give an account. In Matthew 25, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. And the Lord will say, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you didn't do it for me. We live in a very hungry world. And some people don't know what they're hungry for, church. People searching for reality and can't find it. We who know Jesus haven't told them about it. The bread of life. Or maybe we haven't helped it make it possible for others to know him too. So what will we say? What will we say? I am the bread of life. Come to me, all who are heavy and weary, heavy laden. I will give you rest. Worship team, we come on up as we sing this together.